Church, I invite you to open in God's Word with me this morning to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. I want you to hold a finger there, if you can. Hold your place. And then also turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Uh, the words from Genesis 41 uh, will be on the screen when I read those in just a moment, but the scripture from Luke 24 won't. Uh, but I want you to be there anyway because I want you to see what God's word says also in Luke and verse 27. We find this truth. Uh, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it says, he interpreted for them, Jesus interpreted for them, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Here's the central thing that Jesus taught them, and, and this is what we need to key in on this morning. Jesus believes that the whole Bible is about himself. Jesus believes that the whole Bible is about himself. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus believes something or Jesus thinks something, that's probably something we ought to get on board with. And so he's teaching these disciples all about who he is, but it says he does this in a very unique way. Look at what it says. It says, first of all, that it was beginning with Moses. Beginning with Moses. Now, that's probably lost on us, but it wasn't lost on them. Moses would have been this, this, a short way of saying that is the books of Moses, okay? So this would have been the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's where Genesis is important to us. And so he begins with the books of Moses, and then it says uh, the prophets. Well, the prophets, that's probably not lost on us. That's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets that you probably very seldom read. And then there's all the scriptures, right? All the scriptures. He says, all the scriptures. Now, this wouldn't be the Old and the New Testament like we have it today. This, to them at that time, the New Testament was not written yet. And so he's saying, this is the Old Testament. This is what they held in their hands. This is what was in their possession. And so here's what Jesus says. All of that is about me. Now, here's why this is a struggle for us. It's a struggle for us because we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we say, that's about Jesus. And then Paul, he, he writes his letters, and he talks about Jesus all the time. But it's a struggle for us when we read the Old Testament because we, we, we don't understand oftentimes that the Old Testament also points to Jesus. Now, I've said this on occasion, and I try to emphasize this, particularly when we're preaching from the Old Testament. But I want you to understand there's a reason for that emphasis. It's not just something that, that, that's something I've adopted. No, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says the whole Bible points to himself. I read it this way from a, a well-known preacher. He says, we don't properly read our Bibles until we see how it connects to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The Bible tells one story. And Jesus is the star. You and I, we're in the Bible too. We are the ones whose sins sent Jesus to the cross. But he is the subject, and he is the hero. Why is this important regarding Genesis 41? And you can turn back there now. It's important because Genesis 41 paints such a thorough picture of Jesus that we can't ignore it. 
Here's the reality of the chapter before us. A lot of times when we're working through an Old Testament passage, I might make a statement that says, hey, by the way, this little part here, it points to Jesus. Or or this name, it connects to the genealogy of Jesus. Or or, or, this is how Jesus illustrated this. and, And that's okay. But sometimes we come across a chapter in the Bible and we say, wait a minute. <laughs> All of this points clearly to Jesus, okay? And so I wanted you to understand the biblical foundation for why we're going to make the connections that we're going to make in Genesis 41 to Jesus. So I'll tell you, this is not an application-rich sermon. You're not going to go home with three steps to, to how to walk with Jesus today, okay? That's not what you're going to take from it. But it's going to be very, uh, we'll just say, theologically rich. It's going to be some deep water, And for some of us, it might be uncomfortable, but I want you to hold on tight. We're going to walk through this chapter together, hold on together, and we're going to see this beautiful truth illustrated before us. If you're taking notes, here it is. God exalts his servant to save the world. God exalts his servant to save the world. Some of you are already making the connection You see, in Genesis 41, Joseph is most certainly God's literal suffering servant. He suffered for crimes that he did not commit. But by the end of this chapter, God will exalt him or lift him up as one who lords power and influence over all of the known ancient world. But here's where this is critical. More than that, this is the story of Jesus. One who also suffered for sins that he did not commit. But by the end of this book, by the end of this story, he is the one who stands as the sovereign Lord, not just over the known ancient world, but over all of creation and eternity. With that in mind, we're going to look at the first 16 verses. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm going to read 16 verses to you. So you're going to get to sit down this morning. Genesis chapter 41 And look at verses 1 through 16 with me. At the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing beside the Nile when seven healthy-looking, well-fed cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, sickly and thin, came up from the Nile and stood beside those cows along the bank of the Nile. The sickly, thin cows ate the healthy well-fed cows. Then Pharaoh woke up from this horrible nightmare, we should say. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven heads of grain, plump and good, came up, uh, came up on one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, thick and scorched by the east wind, they sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven plump full ones. And then Pharaoh woke up, and it was only a dream. When morning came, he was troubled, so he summoned all the magicians in Egypt and and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I remember my faults. Pharaoh was angry with me, with his servants, and he put me and the chief baker in the custody of the captain of the guards. He and I had dreams on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. Now a young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guards, was with us there. We told him our dreams. He interpreted our dreams for us, and each had its own interpretation. It turned out just the way 
he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, and went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I'm not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the richness of your word. God, thank you that it is always true and it has such rich meaning and significance even for us today. God, I pray that as we look in this passage that we will clearly see a picture of our Jesus. God, the one who is the exalted servant now to save the world from their sins. Lord, I pray that you will make clear that which might be confusing. And God, I pray that instead of hearing my words, that we will hear the very words of God from your word. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Genesis 41, a picture of Jesus. Here's what I hope we're going to see. I hope that we will see three ways that Joseph, God's exalted servant in Egypt, points us to Jesus who would come for us. First, make note of this. The exalted servant glorifies God. The exalted servant glorifies God. In the first 32 verses, God works around Joseph and through Joseph in a way that points to God's sovereignty. Another way of saying that is, it points to the fact that God is in control, that God is the boss, that God has always been in charge. He's never once lost sight of every detail in Joseph's life. First, we're going to see this. God's timing is right. God's timing is right. God's perfect. Timing is perfect, you could say. Again, everything is ordered in a way that, that fits so perfectly and so neatly together that there's no mistake that this had to be the very hand of God that's moving. Notice in verse 1, the setting is given to us. It says, at the end of two years. At the end of two years. Well, remember the last chapter, Joseph is in prison uh, with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. He interprets the dreams and, and he tells the cupbearer, he says, listen, when you get out of here, please tell Pharaoh about me. Please tell Pharaoh what I've done. Please tell him that I've been falsely accused. Please make sure that you get me out of this jail. Well, we end chapter 40 with these troubling words. The cupbearer forgot about Joseph. Well, chapter 41 picks up with uh, the, these two years have uh, elapsed. But don't miss this. God's timing came during Joseph's 30th year of life. After spending two more years in prison, and when we put it all together, Joseph had spent nearly half of his young existence in Egypt, far away from his family. He had been painfully waiting in the midst of false accusations, painfully waiting on God to move, painfully waiting, remember, for God to bring to pass the very dream that he had told his brothers so long ago. Well, in verses 2 through 7, God initiated Joseph's deliverance by giving some dreams to Pharaoh. Now, dreams are significant in the book of Genesis. We, we saw this last week, but we see this in other places as well. In, in chapter 37, that's when Joseph has his dreams, and they are a revelation of God. And then chapter 40, just last week, we saw that there were these two dreams given to the chief baker and the chief cupbearer. 
But then in chapter 28, you probably remember Jacob at Bethel. Jacob has a dream, and God reveals to Jacob that he is always with him. But here's what's critical in verse 9. There's, there's a detail there. After the dream happens, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I remember my faults. I read an interesting observation this week that I'd never thought of before. Had the chief cupbearer remembered Joseph when Joseph wanted him to remember him, most likely that remembrance would have been lost on Pharaoh. It would have been meaningless, perhaps. But because Pharaoh had had these dreams, unbeknownst to Joseph, unbeknownst to everyone in the story, because God had intervened at just the right time, the cupbearer intervenes and he remembers Joseph, this young man he met in prison. Remember, God's timing is right. Well, how does this connect to Jesus? Well, Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul writes it this way. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, the scriptures say, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Understand in the book of Isaiah, there are some prophecies about Jesus, particularly those regarding his crucifixion, his, his hands being pierced with nails. Understand that, that crucifixion uh, was not a means of putting someone to death at the time that that was written. And so guess what had to happen? The Romans had to invade many years later, and, and they had to bring with them this practice of crucifixion. And at just the right time, Jesus came. At just the right time, at God's appointed time, our Savior would come. God's timing is right, and it glorifies God. But secondly, God's grace is surprising. His grace is surprising here. In verses 15 and 16, we saw here that, that, that Pharaoh tells, I'm sorry, Joseph tells Pharaoh that it's going to be God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This was the grace of God. Remember, this is Pharaoh in this story. Remember, this is Pharaoh, a godless pagan individual, uh, one who did not know the God of the Hebrew people. And yet it was to Pharaoh that God would share this life-saving truth of how he and all his people could be spared. Now, only a gracious and loving God would do that. God also makes his grace available to us, not because we're good, but because he's good. Don't you remember Jesus saying from the cross that surprising, gracious statement, Father, would you forgive them? For they don't know what they're doing. Surprising grace from our good Jesus. God's timing is right. God's grace is surprising. But third, notice this, the, the third way that this brings glory to God. God's plans are certain. In verses 17 through 24, Pharaoh restates the dream to Joseph. I won't go back through it again. It's almost a verbatim restatement of everything that uh, he had already experienced. But notice in verses 25 through 28, I do want to read that to you. This is what happens. This is how Joseph responds. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. That's critical. Then he says, the seven good cows are seven years. The seven good heads of, uh, are seven years. The dreams mean the same thing. 
The seven thin and sickly cows that came up after them, they are seven years. And the seven worthless scorched heads of grain are seven years of famine. Verse 28, it is just as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. A couple of things here point to how Joseph gives glory to God and God's certain plans. Notice this. He makes this matter-of-fact statement. This is what God's about to do. He doesn't just say it once. He says it twice. He doesn't want Pharaoh to miss this. This is a fixed thing is what Joseph is saying. But also, he gives some very specific time parameters. He did this in chapter 40. Remember, he told the chief baker and the cupbearer, he said, in just three days, this is going to happen. So in other words, in just three days, what I'm telling you is going to be proven true or it's going to be proven false. Well, he gives some specific time parameters here too. He's so confident in what God has done that he's willing to say, yes, in seven years, this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen in just exactly this way. We talked about this last week, but don't forget this. Joseph really had every reason not to have confidence in God, right? Remember, he told his brothers, he said, hey, I'm going to reign over you guys. I'm going to be in charge. Y'all are going to bow down to me. And then he told his family the same thing. And then shortly thereafter, where did he end up? Sold into slavery. If anybody had reason to doubt that that God was going to do what these dreams said were going to happen, Joseph was the one who had reason to doubt. But he didn't. No, he gives glory to God. And he points to God's certain plans. Verse 32, he goes on so much to say this. Since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God and he will carry it out soon. There's a pattern of of twos throughout these two chapters, Genesis 40 and 41 that illustrate what Joseph says right here. This is not an accident. This is a detail that is included, and I want to draw your attention to it. First of all, this pattern of twos, notice there are two servants in chapter 40 who have what? Two dreams. And then Pharaoh has not one dream, but two dreams. Pharaoh retells the dream not once, but twice. That's, it seems like it just makes the chapter longer, but it really is intentionally that way. And then secondly, Joseph interprets the dream twice, not once. Again, God's plans are certain. Joseph says this. The retelling of this story says this. They may be unknown to us, but God's plans are no less certain, friends. But this doesn't excuse us from living in light of these certain plans. No, because secondly, notice this. The exalted exalted servant personifies wisdom. It lives in response to, you could say, what he has now disclosed to Pharaoh. Listen to verses 33 through 36 at the wisdom that Joseph shares. He says, so now. In other words, in light of all of this, in light of these things that I've told you, listen to this. Let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. That phrase, let Pharaoh, he's literally saying, Pharaoh, you better do this. That's what he's really saying. Uh, Let him appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the excess food during these good years that are coming. Under Pharaoh's authority, store the grain in the cities so they may preserve it as food. The food will be a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. 
then the country will not be wiped out by the famine. Joseph did more than interpret the dreams for Pharaoh. He encouraged him that in light of this interpretation, we should take action. We need to do something about it. This type of wisdom was unknown at this time. No one did this. There was plenty of times where people would say wise or somewhat truthful things, but very rarely would they say how to act on those things. But Joseph gives some very specific instructions. Why? First, true wisdom leads to action. You see, that's the difference in having some knowledge and having real wisdom. It, with knowledge, you just know a bunch of stuff. But with wisdom, you act on that knowledge. In other words, you know how to live in light of that knowledge. James would say it this way in James chapter 3 and verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show uh, that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. True wisdom leads to action. But notice this also about true wisdom. True wisdom is revealed by God. It's not revealed by man. Notice how Pharaoh responds to all of this. But before we see that response, don't miss this. Joseph is still a servant. Joseph has been set free from the dungeon. They dressed him up. We saw all that, right? They, they went and got him. They, they, they shaved him. I guess he had a big, big, long beard. I'm not real sure. But they dressed him up, and maybe they made him smell real nice, and they brought him in. But nonetheless, they could dress him up all they wanted to, but he was still a servant at this point. The tension here is how is Pharaoh going to respond to this servant, this Hebrew servant, telling him what he should do? Verse 37, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. He said to them, can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. He says, surely this is the wise man before us. Not only does he say that, he says, surely this man has his wisdom coming from God. Beyond that, true wisdom, it, it doesn't just lead to action. It's not just revealed by God. And I didn't include this in the notes, but maybe uh, you, you, you write this down. True wisdom changes those around us. It does. It affects people around us. It transforms lives around us. People don't listen to you just because you know a bunch of stuff, but they see stuff, something that is unique and peculiar about you. Verses 40 through 44, I won't read all that to you, but basically Pharaoh does some things that symbolize putting Joseph in a place of authority. He, he dresses him up in royal garments and clothes. He gives him a ring that signifies the authority he's going to have, and, and he says that you're going to have a chariot that you're going to ride on, and all these things. Joseph's life was transformed. Why? Because his wisdom had come from God, it was godly wisdom, but then also that wisdom had affected those around him. How does this point to Jesus? It would seem that Joseph is the perfect picture of wisdom. We look at Solomon also in the Old Testament. How do these individuals who are so wise, how do they point to our Savior who would come? Paul says it like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 he said, it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became the wisdom 
of God for us. Our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. You see that? Jesus personifies wisdom perfectly. Just as Joseph lived out this wisdom before Pharaoh and his life was transformed and changed, guess what? So also our Jesus, the one who is the wisdom come from God, he is high and lifted up. He is exalted because he is God's perfect wisdom. Finally, the exalted servant restores hope. Restores hope. In verses 46 through 49, Joseph is given the authority to carry out his plan. And those details are given in those few verses. But then in verses 50 through 52, there's something included there that seems almost out of place. But it paints a picture of what would one day come and also the way that Joseph understood everything he had experienced. Let me read this to you. Two sons were born to Joseph before the years of famine arrived. Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest at On, bore them to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh and said, God has made me forget all my hardship and my whole family. Verse 52, and the second son he named Ephraim. And he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So two sons are born to Joseph. And these two sons, they come up again. And that's why they're included here. But the understanding and the meaning of these names is what's important for the way Joseph understood what had happened. First, when we're talking about hope, hope, Joseph tells us, redeems the past. He says, in the name of Manasseh, he says, God has made me forget all the hardship and my whole family. Now, that sounds a little dark, but really what he's saying is, listen, my past is now my past. God has redeemed what has now been lost to me. God is still good despite all of those things. Hope redeems the past. But also, hope offers peace in the present, the here and now. He says the second son is named Ephraim. And Ephraim's name, again, means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In other words, Joseph, this embodiment of perfect wisdom, living in Egypt in a, in a place that is far away from his native land and family, he says, listen, God has given me peace right now. Hope offers peace in the present. But then in verses 53 through 55, the famine hits. Things really turn dark. And then in verses 56 and 57, everything culminates with a beautiful truth. Notice this. Now the famine had spread across the whole region. So Joseph, he opened all the storehouses and he sold grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Here's the detail though. Every land came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain for the famine was severe in every land. Here's the final thing that hope offers. Hope is for the nations. It's for the nations. Understand, when we're talking about all of the land coming to Joseph at that time, that was all of the known world. This was not a small group of people. These were droves and droves of people that were coming to Egypt. Why? Because this man, Joseph, who was the embodiment of perfect wisdom in Egypt, had come up with this great plan that had come only from God. And he had stored up 20% year after year after year. Why? So all of these people could be saved. You see, Joseph gives us a glimpse 
of the servant who offers salvation to the world today. Listen, just as Joseph was exalted to Pharaoh's right hand to rule over Egypt, John would write it this way in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16. He would say that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, meaning the King of kings and Lord of lords over all the nations and all of creation. Just as all came to bend the knee to Joseph, we see that here in chapter 41. Paul would say it this way in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10. At the name of Jesus, y'all know this, Every knee will bow. Just as Joseph, this is beautiful, offered bread to save the nations. The grain in the storehouses was available for the nations. Listen, Jesus would say this in John chapter 6 and verse 51. Whoever eats of this bread is going to live forever. We want to be Joseph in a story like this, don't we? Yeah, of course we do. We want to be Joseph. We want to be the hero of the story. All of us. That's, that's, that's why we watch good movies. We want to be the hero. We want to be the one who, who, who kind of comes up with the good plan and saves the day. Just like we want to be David when he kills Goliath, right? We want to be David. Uh, we want to be the one who's slaying the giant, and we have this supernatural strength to do so, and we sling that stone to just the right place at just the right moment, and the giant falls to the ground. That's what we live for. We want to be Moses, don't we? You want to be Moses? When he parts the Red Sea, you want to be the guy with the staff in your hand, right? And you stick it in the ground and the sea parts before you. We want to be David. We want to be Joseph. We want to be Moses. That's who we want to be. But we're not. We're not Joseph in this story. No, we are those desperately hungry people that come to the storehouses in Egypt. We're the ones that are hungry and hopeless. We're the ones who, without that exalted servant, would be left starving into eternity. The psalmist writes it this way, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Believer, I've got a question for you. When is the last time you've been nourished by the bread of life? When is the last time that your starving soul was satisfied by this one who said you would never go hungry? When was the last time that you feasted on the word of God and the presence of God in such a way that you could not help but be changed forever? When was that last time? The invitation this morning for you is very simple. Sometimes we got to recommit some things. Sometimes we got to encounter the Word of God in such a way that we cannot leave here except for being changed and transformed by it. I invite you to do that. You don't have to do that coming forward. You can do it right where you're sitting this morning. But God's been doing a work in the hearts of some people in our church. He's been doing a work in my heart. Listen carefully. Don't leave here without feasting on the Word of God and leaving here nourished. But non-believer, listen to this. Some of you are in here starving to death and you don't even realize it. Uh, you've been starving your whole life and you don't know it yet. Uh, you've searched for answers in all the wrong places. You've tried to put life together in all the wrong ways. You've tried to satisfy the crazy craving of your soul in all the wrong ways with all the wrong things. And the word of God to you today is this. 
taste and see that the Lord is good. There is only one who can offer you this bread of life. It says in the scriptures there in Genesis 41 that all of the nations went to Egypt because they were hungry. Not one person was left out of that. It would break my heart forever to know that there were people in this very room hearing these very words who would leave this place still starving to death and never feasting on the grace of God that's available to them. Here's what we're going to do in just a moment. Miss Vivian's going to play and James is going to sing and we're all going to sing together, but, but here's what happens. Here's how you can respond. Uh, we're going to have some folks that are going to be down here in the front and they're going to be on these front two rows right here. And I invite you to come. If you know that the longing of your heart has forever been unsatisfied until this moment, I invite you to come. I invite you to give your life to Jesus. Listen, cultural Christianity ain't going to cut it, right? Coming to church week after week or ever so often, listen, that's not a relationship with Jesus. Doing the right things is not a relationship with Jesus. No, trusting in the all-sufficient grace of God, that's a relationship with Jesus, and that's your only hope. And so I'm going to invite you to come in just a moment. They're going to meet you right here. We would love just to pray with you and answer your questions. Listen, and there is not a judgmental soul in this room right now. We would celebrate with you if you gave your life to Jesus today. I promise you that. Don't leave here. Don't leave here starving to death. As our prayer partners come, they're going to come to the front here. You can see them, and they're going to be here on the front row. They're going to be waiting on you. And I'm going to invite all of y'all to stand now and I'm going to pray over this time of response and I invite you to come. I invite you to come. Don't leave here starving to death.